Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. In this episode, we're talking about sugar beet nutrient management. We have three members of Extension's nutrient management team and a special guest. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser. I am a nutrient management specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. I specialize in nutrient management guidelines for the majority of our commodity crops across the state of Minnesota. Hi, I'm Melissa Wilson. I'm an extension specialist and associate professor in soil, water, and climate. I deal typically with manure nutrient management. And I'm uh, Lindsay Pease, and I am a nutrient and water management specialist uh, with the University of Minnesota. I am stationed in the heart of sugar beet growing country in Minnesota in the Red River Valley. I work out of the Northwest Research and Outreach Center in Crookston. And I guess I'm John Lamb, and I'm the special guest. Uh, I'm a professor emeritus in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate. I've uh, done a lot of research in sugar beets since about 1984. I retired about seven years ago. Great. So starting off, how did Minnesota become the nation's top sugar beet producer? Minnesota has traditionally been uh, a sugar beet uh, uh, producer. I think a lot of it goes back to about 1900s. Uh, the, it came with uh, the, the growers in uh, Red River Valley and also a bunch of growers in southwest uh, Minnesota. They raised, they've raised uh, beets since that time, basically either for uh, uh, American Crystal Sugar as the company form. Uh, the, there's a group, the group in southwestern Minnesota used to haul to a plant in Chaska, and then in about 1974 or 5, they, uh, the Chaska plant closed, and they started, uh, they built their own plant in Renville, Minnesota. In the, in the valley, American Crystal became a co-op uh, around that time, I believe, and then uh, also down at, uh, in the Breckenridge area, Mindac Cooperative started, and so there's a, a number of uh, processing plants up in the Red River Valley. Sugar beets account for about half of the sugar that we consume in the United States. Uh, of that, we grow between the Red River Valley, which includes North Dakota, Minnesota, and also in the, the south central part of Minnesota, we grow about a quarter of the nation's sugar. And so we have a long history of that. All of the, the processing plants are, are farmer-owned cooperatives. So, John, is there something about the soils up here? Because if you look at beets, I mean, you look at kind of where they're grown in the U.S. I mean, we look at kind of our latitudes, it's kind of stretching over to Michigan, too, that there's, you know, kind of seems to be more northern. And you see them in areas particularly more of higher pH. Is there something about that that is better for beets? Or, I mean, how does that, that work? It is kind of interesting. Uh, Minnesota and Michigan and the Red River Valley are the only dry land sugar beets grown. Michigan soils tend to be a little more acid. The soils in the Red River Valley and, and southwestern Minnesota are, are higher organic matter soils. We have cooler temps in the evening that help put on sugar in the uh, fall. That organic matter that we have sometimes can be a problem from a nitrogen standpoint, particularly if we have moist falls where we get mineralization because nitrogen causes low, lower sugar, sugar quality and, and more impurities. 
as you go west in, in the United States, sugar beets are irrigated. And then we have also have one anomaly. We grow sugar beets. There's about 25,000 acres of sugar beets down in the Imperial Valley, south of the Salton Sea. And of course, they raise those during the winter. In fact, they just wound up uh, harvesting in the end, uh, the early August. So when they're, they're planting beets right now, we're harvesting beets. It tends to be with higher pH soils, but uh, not always. Yeah, and you know something really interesting about sugar beets that I didn't even realize until I was moving into the Red River Valley region is, um, you know, the area I grew up in, which is Northwest Ohio, is technically used to be part of the Michigan sugar growing area. You know, has the same, um, you know, clay lake bed soils, but um, apparently a lot of those. Uh, you know, beet growing acres and factories um, ended up going out in the um, 80s, you know, going out of business. So, um, you know, and I do think it is partially because uh, in Minnesota, we have these cold winters that, you know, we all like to complain about, but are actually really great for storing, you know, a large number of beets. And, um, you know, I think that's something that that keeps those factories really profitable that, you know, once you move further south, uh, that that window to store beets is shorter and shorter. Yeah, that's one of the things I think I, I think in growing up in Iowa, I think there were some plants at one point in time in northern Iowa, or I think around the Mason City area. And my dad talks about them delivering beets into, you know, around Waverly, whereas that, that's been years and years and years ago. So, so it kind of shifted towards, I think, like Lindsay, what you're saying, it's John or John, it's probably a storage issue too, because you can see those piles out there and it gives you some topography relief up in the Red River Valley when you're driving around, you can kind of think where you see some hills, but they're piled beets, but um, it's interesting. I mean, I didn't get into research with beets until I didn't realize, John, it's been about seven years since he retired. Um, it's an interesting crop dealing with because it's it's kind of like wheat when you're dealing with that uh, that quality issue, like you were talking about, John, with over-application of nitrogen actually being of a detriment because it results in lower sugar quality and, pro- and it it's kind of more of a processing issue for the uh, for the factories. So, Kind of an interesting crop to work with being that, um, again, you've got that quality component to deal with where we don't necessarily deal with that with corn where over application of nitrogen just generally doesn't give us a penalty. Yeah. What are some highlights from past sugar beet nutrient management research in Minnesota? Well, I think John can chime in a little bit on this, but I mean, a lot of the work has been on nitrogen because that's really the key component. Um, You know, there's been some work on phosphorus, looking at placement. Um, I think some of that Work that you know, John. I think maybe you were involved with, and Albert Sims were involved with looking at uh, starter versus broadcast with phosphorus. Um, some interesting things there, um, just because beets are grown in areas where we tend to be lower in phosphorus, but you know, starter rates can you know tend to at times be sufficient for sugar beet production. So that's the main one I've seen. I mean, been a smattering of stuff here or there on sulfur and potassium, but you're generally in an area where potassium hasn't been an issue and really in a crop that uh, potassium, I don't think has really been as much of an issue, but uh, John, you might be able to provide some comments on that. You're right, Dan. Most of the areas we grow uh, beets in are have a natively high potassium content. Also, uh, when they set up some of the quality uh, standards for beets, uh, potassium is contamination when it comes to the refining. So we've always kind of stayed away from it. Um, in recent years, I've done a did a study where we put tons of potassium on just to see if we could hurt the quality, and we really didn't. So it isn't quite the stay away uh, uh, nutrient that we worry about. 
We, I also worked with zinc. Zinc is one of those crazy ones that uh, you might get uh, one in 20 sites to get a response to. And, and you think about it uh, with our, the soils being mainly higher pH, that maybe that is a, could be a problem. Uh, another one we've monkeyed with a little bit is boron. If you're on real sandy soils that are irrigated, uh, sometimes we see a response, but on heavy textured soils. I mean, Dan, you came back and did a number of studies on boron and on heavy textured soils and didn't get anything. One thing we do worry about with boron is it, it can be tough on the seed if it gets near the seed. Same way with the, the work that Albert Sims did on, on starter phosphorus. Uh, the, the neat thing is we can put three gallons of phosphorus in the roll on the seed, uh, not do damage to the seed in the germination. And still, his work showed it was like uh, 60 pounds of, of phosphate uh, broadcast applied. Yeah, three gallons of 1034. It's amazing kind of what that can do, particularly in, in some circumstances. But I know that's what's kind of the interesting thing looking at some of that. Um, you know, it's interesting. You talk a little bit about damage, John. I mean, that's been one of the questions I've gotten the last few years has been uh, urea spring applied. A lot of growers seeing um, issues with stand loss with urea. And we've seen that in many of our studies. You look at increasing rates of um, nitrogen as urea, we can see a significant loss in stand. The thing about beets, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit about uh, small grains is that that reduced stand that they tend to flex a little bit and you end up with a bigger beet um, just because of uh, not having as much competition and yield doesn't seem to be as impacted, even though stand can be significantly reduced. So it's kind of one of those things that I know growers are worried about it, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about current research, because we're still looking at that with uh, some of these different nitrogen products, but but that's been one of the big things, the big questions I've gotten, uh, particularly from um, you know some of the, the consultants of working with beet growers is, is on some of that, that spring urea. So that's been the big thing. Um, you know, John, you mentioned the, the boron. Um, that's one of the, kind of the questions I've gotten, and we saw absolutely nothing with it. And you actually see with maybe where it looked like tonnage was going down slightly with some of our higher rates. So it's one of the things that with organic matter, if you've got high organic matter, I'm just not generally worried about it. If you pull samples and it's dry, I think you're likely to see lower boron content in the tissue, but I just not a whole lot you're going to do about it because it's dry. And that's just likely a, a thing, a lack of uptake. You get water, it's kind of what we've seen with alfalfa and some of the areas that were traditionally boron deficient, you get moisture and then the, the symptoms for deficiency tend to go away. So it isn't straightforward. Um, you know, another question I'd gotten, you know, this fall was on sulfur. So evidently there must be some growers kind of talking more about that. And we've run that. I know, John, you worked with Mark Bredehoff, um, had some stuff a number of years ago looking at that. And there just wasn't anything with sulfur and beets. I mean, really the biggest concern for growers right now is nitrogen. Uh, just because of that um, you know, trade-off, you know, with tonnage and quality, I mean, that's the kind of the thing that has to be the, the bigger focus when you start looking at it. And that's, again, traditionally what the, other than diseases, it's kind of what the growers have been interested in. And that's what the research is focused on. What current studies does the U of M have on sugar beet nutrient management? I guess I can jump in here. We have a current trial and I actually started working on this with John, so he can feel free to chime in. Uh, we're looking at manure application in the sugar beet rotation. There's been more and more of these larger dairies coming into the sugar beet growing regions, whether it's up in the Red River Valley, 
It's also happening in West Central Minnesota as well. So there's been you know questions about can we get this manure and can we apply it in the rotation and will it affect sugar beet growth? Kind of like John and Dan were mentioning earlier, nitrogen is of concern, particularly if there's nitrogen in the soil late in the season, which traditionally, you know, manure is the gift that keeps on giving and it keeps on giving nitrogen potentially later in the season. So we wanted to know, you know, can we put it in front of sugar beet or should we put it somewhere else in the rotation, you know, prior to soybean, prior to corn, wherever it may be. So that's kind of what we did. John uh, helped me design an experiment where we actually have all three crops in rotation. So we applied manure at two different rates, uh, one fall, and then we applied or planted all three of the different crops that year to kind of see again, where in the rotation should this manure go? So we applied manure that first year, and then we did not apply it the second and third year. We did a balance everything with fertilizers though. So we're not talking about any, we're not looking at nutrient deficiencies. We're just seeing, can we use manure as a nutrient source and replace some of the fertilizer? Um, overall, we've been seeing pretty good um, results. We, especially with sugar beet, we are thinking that there would be a hit on extractable sugar or purity. And we actually didn't really see too much of that. I guess we saw like the extractable sugar was actually higher in our um, manure plots typically than it was with our fertilizer only plots. The sugar purity was a little bit lower, but we're talking less than 1% at two different sites um, that first year after manure application. Uh, so overall, I think we're actually pretty pleased. And again, John can fill in, but I think we're happy to see that. What year did you apply, Melissa? Was it a dry or wet year? Yeah, so we we did this in kind of West Central Minnesota, and that trial we applied in fall 2019, which was very, very wet. We were glad that we even got manure applied that year. Then it ended up being kind of a normal to dryish year in 2020. And then our second site we applied in the fall of 2020. That, that was up more um, near getting a little bit closer to the Red River Valley, or it was in the Red River Valley. For... In the fall of 2019, that site had actually flooded out. So that's why we didn't get to apply manure that fall. Um, so that's why we then started the experiment a year later. Historically, we've done manure work in the southern part of Minnesota because uh, we have a lot of hogs and turkeys. And what we have found a lot of times is we will decrease the, the, the quality a little bit, but the increase in tonnage more than made up with it with the payment systems that, that are involved. Uh, we, we always went on land that had never been manured and we um, uh, only only went through one cycle of the of the rotation and so that was kind of a base to that and and Melissa's work is looking at this this dairy manure because we'd only worked with turkey and hog before and so it, it will be interesting it, it kind of defies some of my thinking of the fact that manure is bad and you know oh my goodness we're we're going to ruin quality. I, I think we can probably manage it in, into the rotation. The other thing about manure, it, it always gives us this tonnage bump, and we don't like to, to process any more pulp than we have to, but if, from a grower standpoint and the payment standpoint, it's still very positive. One other attribute I would put to with the sugar beet and why we worry about this nitrogen thing. We had a study once where we put on up to 240 pounds of nitrogen as urea. And then we also had a similar with hog manure and with turkey litter. 
And we followed the nitrate in the soil from right before application through the whole season. And by August, the nitrate underneath all those treatments was the same. And so the moral of that story is, and it's always been known, sugar beets love nitrate and they'll suck it up. So when you take the, a nitrate soil sample, like right about now, October, it'll be the same no matter what your nutrient, or what your nitrogen application rate was. Well, and that's one of the things I think that's interesting about beets and John, I mean, those roots, I mean, it's a taproot. So in that taproot will go down quite a ways. So our recommendations right now for soil sampling for nitrate, I think are four foot um, for the recommended rate. Although I think we've got some recommendations for, sh for shallower, but a lot of that just accounts for the fact that uh, sugar beets um, so good at pulling nitrate out of the profile just because of that, that deep taproot on it. So it's, it's an interesting crop from that from that standpoint, it's kind of like anything else. If nitrate's there, it's going to take it up. And with that deep taproot, it can extract it out of some pretty deep layers. Um, in a rotational standpoint, it's kind of interesting because a lot of times in the South, we'll see it following corn. So that's where I think soil sampling or soil testing becomes important just to know how much nitrate is there. Uh, Northern ones generally are following wheat, which wheat will, you see, strip out a lot of that nitrate. It'll leave some, but not as much. Um, you tend to manage a little bit more closely because of some lodging issues up up there, but um, but it really becomes important, especially deep soil cores, and you see a lot more uh, sampling in beets just because of um, trying to fine tune those nitrogen recommendations. So those deep cores really help to do that. Yeah, just to add to it, the history of this is is back in the early '80s, Alan Katnaw, who was was an extension uh, person with the, both Minnesota and North Dakota did his PhD research on placing N15 at different depths. And they found that by the end of June, the sugar beet root was already mining nitrogen at four foot. And so we know that that, that is there. It, some of that also tells us why, you know, why we're worried about, you know, putting too much on at the beginning. We don't want to put too much on later in the, the, the life of the beet because, it's it's there, it's going to take it, and it's going to ruin our quality. Lindsay, what are you working on right now? Because I know you had some projects up north. Yeah, a lot of what we have going on um, at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center right now is actually a little bit more um, looking into how you incorporate some of these soil health management practices um, into a sugar beet rotation, you know, reduced tillage, strip till um, and cover crops. And, you know, that's actually bringing up a lot of really interesting nutrient management questions that I'm hoping to get into, which is, you know, when you're kind of trying to reduce tillage or you have, um, let's say you harvest your wheat in, um, you know, hopefully uh, late August and you get a cover crop growing, um, you know, the traditional time to apply your fertility is in the fall and it can be really scary to wait until the spring. And, you know, so how you're sort of working around these systems, these changes in systems that are going to be modifying a little bit of what the, the norm normal practices. These are all questions that, you know, we can draw somewhat from the past research, you know, like that um, John Lamb was saying, you know, Albert Sims and his research about the starter fertilizer, you know, what can you apply with the seed? It's really important, but I think there's still um, a lot of open questions uh, when it comes to that. So that's kind of some of the work that I'm looking to get into next. Lindsay, do you know much about uh, 
cover crops for pre-pile sugar beet. I'm, I'm looking at a blog post from Anna and Jody and Tom Peters and Liz Dahl. Um, I, I don't know if you can summarize that at all. Sure. Yeah. When you're thinking about planting a cover crop, one of the things that, you know, especially gets tough in um, when you're all the way up north in the Red River Valley is let's say it's, it's well, as we're recording this, you know, the, the last of the beets are, or, you know, about half the beets are harvested, you know, but it's already mid-October and there's not a lot of time uh, to establish a cover crop if you're planting, you know, in mid-October. So what's nice about the pre-pile acres is that you can actually get out in those areas um, a little bit sooner. Uh, some of the things that we're seeing though is that those pre-pile areas are often heavily trafficked. Um, so you want something that, you know, if you do plant something that's going to be a little bit more hardy. Um, I don't know that we ended up getting out much, you know, this, this year in terms of for our research plots, because, you know, that was uh, for in, on pre-pile acres, because, um, you know, that was such a big question with the growers is, you know, we kind of said, hey, you want to plant some cover crops on your areas and, you know, knowing that they're going to get beat up. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to see how that um, ended up lasting, but that's sort of one area you can kind of insert into. We do see a lot more cover crops going into beets than after beets. And again, that comes to wheat and you have a lot more time uh, after the wheat's harvested. What else should growers know about sugar beet nutrient management? Well, it's one of the interesting things when we start talking about any of these crops in the state is that we tend to see a lot of transition uh, or a lot of grower interest in certain bringing practices in that may work for one crop rotation, say for corn to beets. Uh, you know, John, you had mentioned, you know, before we started recording uh, some of the, the placement and timing, you know, questions that you get for nitrogen, since growers are looking at that more for corn and they, a lot of them have equipment around there that they can run through the field that, you know, if there are any options for that. And the thing about it, these crops, they're different. And with sugar beet with that deep taproot, uh, it can access deeper levels of nitrate. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me on timing, you know, particularly for heavier soils, there would be any, you know, sort of impact. Uh, the thing that I'm looking at now is urea and urea sources uh, in timing, uh, because it's one of the things in the Southern part of the state, um, fall urea has kind of crept in as a practice for sugar beet application. We know there's some problems with corn um, with that. Um, I'm trying to see if some of the same issues with beets and you know, with some of the stuff we're looking at right now with sources is to try to maybe get a handle on urea since we know that can have volatility issues um, into the winter. Um, and some growers think that that may stop when we hit 50 degrees, but with urea, the volatility portion where we're losing ammonia can actually occur into uh, situations where the soils are froze or near that, um, you know, you know, what that general potential for loss is. We may not be necessarily losing it to the tile lines, but it still uh, you know, represents some loss and kind of some challenges for some of the growers. So that's kind of one of the things that, you know, I'd really say just looking at a lot of this is that um, when you take your research, you just have to be careful what you do. And, um, you know, if it works for one crop, it may not necessarily work for another. So that's kind of one of the big things I guess I would caution some of the growers. Back in 2000, we did a bunch of, uh, of studies that were very similar to what Dan's doing now, looking at fall versus spring urea applications and incorporated the urea. And at that time, we didn't see any difference between fall and spring when it came to yield or quality. So, you know, we've done this off and on over the last 30 years or so. And, and we, we always were encouraging, you know, if they had a chance to put it on the fall, they could get away with it with beets. 
and 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 uh, we always thought it was because that root is moving pretty fast and we don't lose much to the tap to the tiles. Uh, we've also looked at split applications over the last 30 years. And the general summation from that over, I must have done 30 or 40, you know, site years on this is it doesn't seem to hurt your quality if you stay uh, away from like late June applications, but it doesn't help either. So I always come back to the economic standpoint is one application uh, uh, trip is uh, is cheaper than trying to do two. We need to continue in that vein. The, the growers, like I said earlier, are, are really interested in that. They're also looking for the silver bullet with the biologicals and 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 even some of the non-biological uh, nitrogen things. Um, again, we've had some more questions about potassium. You know, you were talking about needs and stuff. We get questions about the, the potassium. Now, uh, micronutrients are always high on the list. Anything that they think might enhance sugar. And so that's been a continuing thing and I think will continue to be through into the future. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing having some of these questions because the good thing about at least having some of these nitrogen trials is that we can continually add to our database, um, especially if we have some core treatments in there that um, are you know, reflective of a response curve. And it's kind of nice to have that. You know, Melissa, your work with manure too, I mean, since that's kind of incorporated into that rotation, it's nice to have that information out there just for growers' questions. And, you know, it keeps us, you know, busy just based on the questions we have. But, um, you know, sulfur is the other one too I get. And it just seems like there's certain crops out there that it makes sense for. You know, potassium is the same way. I mean, corn, both potassium and sulfur, if you're taking care of it on that, regards it doesn't seem that then these crops that are, are less sensitive deficiencies doesn't seem like it makes as much of a difference to kind of focus on them so that's one of the things that um, we've been really looking at with a lot of our research with a lot of the different crops out there is you know where does it make sense to make some of these applications because some of these crops you know you could probably forget it and worry about some nutrients um, more than others and, and not have a, a loss in yield. And just a plug for manure, don't forget manure is a complete nutrient source. So you are getting some of these micronutrients in the rotation, at least, you know, once every three years or whatever rotation you're using and applying the manure. Yeah. And one of the other interesting things, I know, John, you worked with uh, PCC lime, the precipitated calcium carbonate. And that's, I've been getting a few more questions on that too, um, in terms of Nutrient availability, I mean, liming wise, if they give you an ECCE rating on it, I mean, you should be able to use it as a liming source, but it's, you know, the question I get more often than not is, are those other nutrients available, particularly phosphorus? Well, PCC is the wonder drug of the world uh, in the beets. What we've found with using it, that's precipitated calcium carbonate. It's a byproduct of the refining process. So we have these huge piles by each factory. They're trying to get rid of them. And in fact, in Southern Minnesota, we've gotten rid of most of the recent PCC. It, it tends to ameliorate uh, problems with the phanomyces disease. Albert Sims and I did a bunch of work on, on you know, how does this affect phosphorus, for instance. We'll see an increase in soil test but we never saw a response. Now, getting a phosphorus response on sugar beets is not easy because it, I don't know, they just don't respond like, like corn does. But we didn't see much of a response in corn or soybeans in that study either. So, but it doesn't hurt, but you'll get a lot of questions and, and at least in the Southern Minnesota beet sugar area, how it all got started is because of uh, 
some herbicide carryover problems and that occur with uh, areas that have a little lower pH. And so they applied it and they saw a bump. And so it's part of the lifestyle, I guess, and the nutrient management down there. But as for the other nutrients, we've never been able to show that in research. All right. Any last words from the group? Well, I guess I want to thank John for being on. Um, as I said, I was starting here in Minnesota. I want sugar beets are one of the things that I wanted to really get involved with right away just because we had enough work going on with corn and soybeans. So it was good to have at least him around when I've been transitioning into this. And um, it's been good too, as we kind of go through and I'm in the process of uh, redoing some of our publications. I got to get that done here within the next year, but uh, really relying on some of that uh, research that's been done and just um, some of the information that you've had kind of going into some of that um, has been kind of invaluable for some of what we've been looking at as we've been trying to get through uh, some of these revisions to our guidelines. All right, that about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.